This episode of the Henry's Uncle podcast is brought to you by donations from our generous supporters. If you love the Henry's Uncle podcast and want to support us and our nonprofit, please go to henrysuncle.org and click the donate button and or give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Thank you for your continued support. Today on the Henry's Uncle podcast, we talk with Amanda Hemminger, who is a person in long-term recovery. Amanda talks about her sheltered upbringing, how her alcoholism led her to isolation and living in an abandoned home, her parents' journey to understand what she was going through, and how she found and has maintained recovery for over six years. Her story is truly inspiring. Take a listen. I am really excited. Today, we have Amanda Hemminger on. Just a little background. Uh, Amanda and I went to school basically from when we were like six to when we were 18. You were just a year younger than me and your mom took care of us, my brother and I, uh, after school at the school daycare basically. So it's been a long time and and uh, it's wonderful to talk to you and catch up, but please go ahead and uh, uh, introduce yourself. Hi everyone, my name is Amanda and I am so excited to be here. This is really cool. I When you asked me to do this, Eric, I was all about it. I think it's awesome. So yep, known, uh, it's been a long time now. So since we're in our thirties now, like 25 <laughs> of knowing each other and our families knowing each other. And yeah, so I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for joining. You know, for me, I, you know, I haven't talked to you, uh, probably since we graduated high school, but I know we connected over Facebook and, you know, I saw just like a couple posts you did and, you know, talking about recovery and different meetings and stuff. And at first I was kind of hesitant, you know, should I reach out or not? But, um, you know, finally I did. And, you know, I had no idea, you know, you went through substance abuse and, and for some period of your time. So I kind of just want to delve into that, talk about your story, you know, how it came to be, just kind of give us the, the story there. Yeah. So like we talked about, we went to school together and we went to a private Catholic school and 25 kids in my class and great parents, you know, Eric, you know, my parents and they're awesome and good family. And I like to start off by saying that because it will make sense that addiction and this like disease doesn't discriminate based on anybody. Like I had a very great life with good parents and good schooling and very structured and very sheltered though. So that will kind of come up later, but I can look back now and remember at a very, very young age being very obsessive, always feeling like I had like a hole that didn't fill. Like there's always a piece of me that felt like I wasn't enough. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't fast enough. I wasn't smart enough, skinny enough, whatever it was. It was there from a very young age and I can never explain why that is a part of me. I just now, like after all the work and recovery I've done, I just accept that that's part of the addictive gene and the trait and just having that hole that needs to be filled with people, places, things, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is. That's my nature as a codependent kind of obsessive person. Um, So going back to my childhood, I had a very great childhood. I played sports. I was good at sports. I loved them. I was okay in school. I wasn't the smartest kid, but good family and good schooling, all of that stuff. And pretty sheltered and very much constantly told that drugs were bad. Drugs were bad. Drugs were bad. (laughs) Um, Like drilled into me, you know, and Catholic, which not to bring, you know, religion into this, but it was very much like, don't screw up or you're going to hell. Don't screw up or you're bad. Like that's how I interpreted it, which is really interesting now because my siblings, I have a brother and a sister and they don't have the Catholic guilt like I do. 
like we've talked about this before together and they're like my sister, you know, my sister, she's very like blunt and forward. And she's like, yeah, I just don't feel bad. Like I don't have that. And my brother's kind of like, yeah, I don't really either. Maybe a little bit more than her, but that to me, again, that addictive trait, like you hear about, you know, being an addict, being an alcoholic, having the addictive gene to me, that's what I have. So I took anything that was kind of shame or you're not enough or you're doing something wrong and I just go with it. So from a very young age, I was never enough and kind of stayed away from all drugs for sure. Alcohol, I didn't really begin drinking until college for the most part. I partied a little bit in high school, but I was pretty rigid with my sports and my structure and just not making a mistake, being, you know, the rule follower, kind of cookie cutter, trying to just kind of always follow the rules. And I can remember in high school drinking and getting out of control sometimes, but I I just, I guess it's all so washed away now with how bad it did get that in that moment, it didn't feel like it was a problem or anything bad. And then transitioning into college, I went to Oregon State, go Beavs, big win last Friday. Um, <laughs> Don't and, talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, and uh, that was a crazy win, unexpected. And yeah, I joined a sorority and went to a very party heavy school. And that's just what you did was you just drank and you partied. And all of my friends that were, you know, newly in sororities, we all just partied a lot and blacked out a lot and got too drunk. And I kind of remember being like, man, I really can't control this. Like, I kind of remember that, but it was so, it was so easy to overlook it and just say what you did. Like we were just having fun. We were just partying, but there was a little piece of me that was like, this doesn't feel quite normal that I'm always having one drink and I can never stop. Like that's when the, that really started to become apparent to me because I was drinking a lot. Like we partied all the time and more times than not, I blacked out. You know, I had a, a test the next day or class in the morning. I usually, you know, would try not to drink. Cause I knew if I started drinking, I wouldn't stop drinking until I drank too much and then was sick the next day, you know? So I, it's the behavior was kind of there. But you just brush it off. And I'm I'm a pretty, um, I, I have a good work ethic and I have a ability to kind of grind through, which they say a lot of people that have the addict tendencies, like you, you figure it out, you know, you make it work. Like we're clever, we're smart. Like we figure out how to adapt to our surroundings and get by. I mean, you see people go through crazy life experiences and they make it and you're like, how did you, how are you standing? So, you know, so I was able to really kind of function through and get through class and school and kind of control it. And I had a good support system. And I had a a boyfriend at the time who really, really took care of me. I mean, he was a lot of how I got home at night and things like that. So that was kind of the drinking start. And then just to start into the drugs, I started taking Adderall in college. And I... (laughs) Adderall was a lot of how I made it through a lot of class in school because I would drink too much and then I would wake up and be hungover and you take an Adderall, you go to the library and you study and it's very accepted. And now looking back, it to me seems like a little amphetamine, a little meth in a pill. But in the time, I just thought that I was just doing what everybody else did. No big problem, no big deal. Um, but I really, really liked the feeling. I remember that. And then I would start to drink and take an Adderall when I would drink so that I wouldn't black out. So that oh, kind of, wow. yeah. So that kind of preludes into a little bit more of my story, but I, again, I just kind of was doing what everybody else was doing and it was pretty accepted. And, you know, I didn't smoke weed very much or at all. I didn't do other drugs. Like I just kind of, I thought I was okay. And it was routine. I was going to say, yeah, what you just described sounded like, you know, the basically kind of the routine college experience, nothing out of the ordinary 
you know, I know for me, I, a friend of mine, um, Adderall, this was what, 07, 08 down at U of O. And, you know, you always see people, you know, buying Adderall, especially during, you know, finals week, midterm week, you know, people stay up all night. He gave me one because, you know, he kept, oh, if you take this, you know, you're going to, you're, you know, you're going to ace your exams. And, you know, I took one and I just, I despise the feeling of it. Like, again, I'm, I'm a normie. Like I don't have that, you know, gene and about two hours in, I was just so, I was so angry. Like I just, it gave me like the weirdest feeling. And again, I never, never touched it. But to your point, like my brother, you know, Adderall was one of his substances, you know, I don't know if during college, but definitely after, because he always talked about that obsessive, you know, the million, the million thoughts racing through his mind and, and wanting Adderall just to like, so he can stay focused. That was his mission. And so, yeah, I just, you know, again, talking to people and, and, you know, all this stuff just keeps adding up and up and up. So, but sorry, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and the Adderall too, it's interesting. I just read a study that talked about how it gave a theory that all addicts have ADD and it makes a little bit of sense to me. I mean, I'm not trying to diagnose or pinpoint, or I don't even know if I have ADD or not, but my brain does not stop moving and that's exhausting. And then you get that little piece of relief. And to me, I see it as my body then is like, Oh man, this is really nice. Like I needed this escape for a second. And that's like why I want more and more of that. So it's really interesting. Adderall is so it's so interesting because it's such a drug, but it's so accepted. You know, it's kind of like a Oxycontin or a pain pill is the okay thing, but heroin is like the big no-no, but it's all the same thing. It's just kind of a, what can you get your hands on? How much money do you have kind of deal? So yeah, that all started. And, and after my 21st birthday, I remember feeling like I had a problem. That was the first time that I was really like, man, like I'm 21 now. My classes in school are getting harder. Everybody else is kind of reeling it in and starting to not black out all the time. And I still am. But, you know, I just kind of powered on and just kept doing what I was doing with more and more self-loathing thoughts. Because when you can't control your drinking and you act a fool, then you start to not like yourself, even though that's not you. Um, that kind of was the start of that like poor behavior and then feeling like garbage. And then you kind of want to self-medicate because you feel like garbage about yourself. That whole cycle that the problem is this, but the solution also feels like the same thing. That kind of started my downward spiral of like self-loathing and hate started around like 21, 22. But, you know, graduated school, got a job as a personal trainer, you know, was in the relationship still. And I sort of blame college as the problem. And then I started to do the whole, well, I'm just going to drink beer. Well, I'm not going to drink any nights except this Saturday night. And then every Saturday night I was blacking out. I'm not going to drink when I have to work the next day. You know, all those control tactics that you hear people talk about that became sort of my early 22, 23, 24 after college experiences where I just really, really tried to control it. But again, that hole was always there. Like, and I didn't, I didn't grow up around addiction. I didn't, my family is all normies. I have a little bit of addiction in my like expanded family, but wasn't talked about. It was very hush hush, you know, like failure and don't talk about it. And it's not a good thing. So I really had no idea what was going on with me. Like I, I truly thought I was just screwing up my life and couldn't get it together. Not understanding that this was something that I really have zero control over. And so it wasn't, my kind of downward spiral was like 24-ish. I started to, let's see, I think my boyfriend moved back from college. He was getting his master's. So he moved back and we moved in together. 
And he partied. I was introduced to his friends who did coke. So that was my start of like cocaine, which to me is really just Adderall. Like I, I don't really tell like, I, you know, in my, I'm, I'm comfortable talking about it for the most part. I don't always tell people in my like profession and things like that. Usually alcohol is so accepted as okay to have a drinking problem. But to me, they're all the same, like all the same. And so for me, cocaine came in the picture as just a way to control my drinking. It was no different to me than Adderall or Vivans or some form of that upper that prevented me from drinking too much. So I was introduced to that. So then just kind of tried to live this party lifestyle. But really, I was just trying to run. I was just running for myself. I was truly just trying to survive. Like I really see my early 20s from like 22 to 25 as just trying to survive and feeling depressed and drinking too much and then feeling depressed about that and then drinking too much again. And I started to drink by myself at like 25, like 24, 25, because like I just had too many bad things happen when I was drinking and too much shame and too much guilt and I just couldn't handle it anymore. And so from there, it just turned into a very, very rough couple years. <laughs> I don't know, think I don't know if I need to go into too much detail about it, but I will say that it was really, really bad. Like my 25 to 27 went from a career that I loved, a relationship that I was happy in, financial stability, a place to live, family support, friend support. And within two years, I literally ended up at the very end in an abandoned home with no home, no job, no money, support if I would want help, right? But no, like nobody except me because I couldn't help myself. And yeah, like it was that bad. And a lot of people are surprised to hear that because they know of me as you know, I had a great family and a great upbringing and it's Amanda and it's the Hemingers, you know, like I just had this like stigma of like, there's no way that that happened to you, but it did. And that's like the power of addiction and this crazy, crazy disease or disorder or whatever it is you want to call it. Sometimes I'll call mm -hmm. it a, a disorder because to me, it's like, you know, people have mental health with bipolar. People have diabetes from people have these things that they're born with and they can't do anything about it. And that's how I feel about my addiction and my obsessive brain and compulsion and how I am is something that I literally can't do anything about. And it's unfortunate that, you know, I had to try controlling it for so long until I had nothing left. And I remember I started to go to meetings in Portland, to A meetings in Portland and to talk about it. And I remember hearing people in these meetings say to me, you know, you don't have to lose everything to get recovery. And I remember I remember thinking like, I don't want to lose everything. I want to keep my job and I want to keep my, you know, everything, but it's unfortunate. That is what my story is, is that I lost everything. I mean, to me, the bottom, my rock bottom was having nowhere to live. And that's what happened to me at the end. I had nowhere to live. So it was either sleep, start sleeping on shelters and on the street or go to treatment. And I had been to treatment a few times, a couple inpatients. I did two inpatients, one that I left early. And then I did quite a bit of outpatients. And I finally at 27 decided that I needed a long-term treatment program. Like I needed some serious time in a forced control environment for me to get the healing that I needed. Because if I'm you know, out hurting myself and my soul and my spirit, because the physical stuff wasn't even the worst part. It was the emotional mental struggle that wasn't just going to get cured in 28 or 30 days. I was going to take a lot of time. And I was aware of that. So I chose to come to a long-term treatment program that happened to have a women's program in Seattle. So that's what brought me from Portland up to Seattle. 
Now, so during this time, you mentioned college uh, is when you started drinking, and then after college, did and you talked about shame and depression while drinking. Did, did any you know of your friends, boyfriend, did they have any kind of sit down conversations during this time with you, saying, "Hey, you know, things are kind of getting out of control," parents or anything like that, or was it just kind of, "Hey, this is early twenties, you know, she'll snap out of it" type of deal? Or yes. Not in the very beginning, but after a couple years, I had friends that say they were worried about me. I had my ex-boyfriend, actually, he knew what was going on with me way before I knew what was going on with me. He had an understanding of alcoholism that I didn't have. And so he knew that it was a problem and he tried everything he could, but you have to want. But yes, in my family, people were very worried and knew and had talks with me. And it was just like, I wanted recovery and sobriety before I got it at 27 years old. I really wanted it, but I just didn't know how to feel that much pain and sit through it. I didn't have the tools and the support and the guidance to actually feel as much pain as I was going to feel when I finally sat in my stuff. So that's a very interesting thought, you know, because you, you mentioned you wanted recovery. You know, you went to a couple of inpatients, left early once and went to you know, a few outpatients trying to sit through those thoughts. And again, I, I can't speak to those thoughts, you know, someone going through that kind of pain. But was that a reason for you wanting to leave early, not, you know, committing at that time? Just because you're maybe you're scared of those of that pain or, or what was it? Or you just wasn't sure what was going to happen? I think I was unsure of, I didn't have faith or confidence that the pain was ever going to go away because it was so overpowering. And, and really it's obsession. Like to me, obsession is the worst feeling that I can feel. Anxiety and obsession and that all consuming thought in my head that I cannot get rid of. And I think everyone, even people that aren't alcoholic addict can relate to that, like have this like thing that they just like fixate on and they can't stop thinking about it. And with, for me, it was so extreme that I just could not sit. And I I mean, I remember sitting through some obsessions to drink back in my like earlier twenties for like two, three days. And finally I was like, it's never going to go away. So I'm just going to drink. Do you mind sharing some of your obsessions? You know, you don't have to, but of course it was usually to drink or to, to not be present and sober. That's what the obsessions were, were to not be with myself because I had so much self-loathing and shame about being who I was that I couldn't sit as just Amanda. I needed to be impaired to feel like I could get through life. Yeah, it was that heavy. Like it was really, really that heavy for me. To me now, my whole recovery, which we can get more to that, is about freedom from all obsessions. Like I have been clean over six years. I don't have obsessions to drink, do drugs. I haven't for years, but I have obsessions that manifest in other ways. And I work at program constantly around freedom from myself, like freedom from obsession. I want freedom. That's to me, I can't sit in obsession like other people maybe can. It takes me to a place of like actual insanity where I feel like I'm losing my mind. So you mentioned, you know, like these thoughts were like, you know, early on in your life. And you also mentioned structure though, growing up. Do you feel that structure? I mean, you know, I'm just kind of going back to, you know, when we were kids growing up through high school, but school, you know, you come home, practice, come home, homework, go to bed, wake up, do the same thing. You know, it seems like day in and day out or whatever it is, you know, um, sports practice or music practice, whatever, you know, your, your taste is. Do you think that structure helps suppress that obsession 
because it was an outlet. And then during college time, that kind of, you know, for me, it was like that structure just kind of left. You know, there was no more for me with sports. You know, there's no more sports practice. There's no more kind of just that structure that we were always in from seven in the morning till basically six or seven at night. Absolutely. I mean, there was no time to not follow the rules or misbehave or steer off course. I did sports all year round and I've never been a the rule breaker. You know, I kind of just was very structured in my life in general and I just didn't have any freedom to even get to that place of mis of, of acting out or whatever you want to call it. Yes. So I think absolutely I get to college and it's like, wow, freedom and I can do whatever I want. And then it just took me places that I didn't see it taking me. But, you know, really for me, so much of mine is just that I drank because that's what normal people did in college. And I would drink too much and embarrass myself and feel shame about it. And then I would get social anxiety, like I wasn't fun or good enough. And so I'd go back out and have to drink more to ease my social anxiety. And then I drink too much again and repeat, repeat, repeat until it just broke me down. And then it's, there was at one point again, when I started drinking alone, I was just had the well, we're doing this then, you know, like this is what it's going to be now. Like I'm not be sober anymore. I don't have to be sober if I don't want to be. I can drink whenever I want because I'm out of college and I have a job and I'm an adult. You know, that kind of mindset took over. God, I am so sorry. That's just, it's so heartbreaking to hear that. And, you know, especially for, you know, family because, you know, so much an addiction, you know, with, with the person going through it, but then also, you know, for so long addiction has been so quiet. And it's for, like I told you before the podcast, like I didn't know anything about my brother's addiction, even though, you know, my parents knew for about a decade. And, you know, again, I, I saw things that were like, you know, for me, red flags, I'm just kind of going, and again, you don't want to approach, you know, your sibling going, Hey, there's something wrong here without knowing, you know, (laughs) someone does have an issue. And, you know, it's it just, that's the frustrating part with addiction is it, it's kept in, in silence. You know, people, like you mentioned earlier with diabetes or, or some other type of, you know, disorder, it's openly talked about, you know, I know I had, I came down with very severe anxiety when I was about 25, just out of the blue. And I didn't tell anyone for quite some time until I started talking about it with my friends. Every person I've talked to is like, oh yeah, dude, I've dealt with that. And I'm like, oh, so it's a pretty normal, you know, thing. I'm fine to talk about it, whatever. And so, you know, like you going through it, how did your parents react? Because you think of addiction and and the parents are going to come down hard and just be mad. You know, how did your parents respond to your addiction? You going through what you were going through and that pain. And, you know, if you don't mind telling us. I don't at all. I think this is just like a side note. I think these kinds of interviews or podcasts or whatever are so important because addiction is so misunderstood. And if I would have known more about addiction, I might've had a different story and that's no one's fault. So that's to, I guess, piggyback now onto my parents. Like they didn't understand addiction. I didn't understand addiction. I grew up thinking a alcoholic was a, a bum on a homeless person was a, an alcoholic and they chose to drink and then they ended up on the streets and they're a bum and you do drugs because you choose to do drugs, not because you become addicted to it. And so I had all these misconceptions about addiction. And that's why it's really cool to get to sit here on the other side and share the reality of it because it's it has changed my family so much. So my parents, not understanding what was going on, of course, there was you know frustration and control and 
you know, I wouldn't say they were really punishing me, but they were just were like, what is going on? You know, like this is our little girl that's always been so committed to her sports and her school. And why, you know, what is happening to you? What is wrong with you? You know, like just not understanding and me not even understanding to say anything back. You know, I didn't have an answer to what was going on with me either. Now I understand looking back, but at the time, so, you know, my, my mom, my dad and I are very similar and we're very, very close. And he took more an approach of trying to fix me, you know, bail me out when I couldn't pay my bills, help me. He just, he really took a more hands-on approach. Whereas my mom was more of a, you need to let her make the mistakes and deal with the consequences kind of teacher probably. I don't know, maybe, (laughs) but, um, they really just didn't quite understand what was going on with me either. And, but I can't say I ever felt like they didn't like love me or support me or like looked down on me because of it. They just were like, my mom used to always say to me, like, I just want you to have inner peace. I just want you to have peace. Like you have never had peace in your life. And that kind of goes back to as a kid, they remember me being so always not enough, you know, always not enough. Even when I was doing great in my sports and my school. And, you know, it's just, it's just really interesting how I believe as a young kid, I just had this, but as my addiction kind of progressed, my parents, and I don't know exactly when they got into Al-Anon or how they got into it. I know their, their good friend had some, was a part of it and kind of swooped them up and took them into Al-Anon. And from there, that's when everything changed. They stopped enabling me. They stopped bailing me out they started to understand addiction and it's very, very cool because they are such a great support for other people that maybe their kids are going through it or they have family friends. And, you know, you grow up in a little community of the, this is, you know, Portland and this private school. And it's like, you don't screw up. Everybody just thrives, right? Like everyone's something they're thriving at and to, to screw up is so frowned upon and shame. And, you know, you don't show your weakness. You don't. And I feel like I'm so grateful for my addiction because now my parents are able to be there for other parents who maybe don't want to go talk about it. And they don't have, they don't know who to reach out to and they can reach out to my parents. And after they started in Al-Anon, that was actually when I got clean. I was in that abandoned home with nowhere to go. And my parents said, you can't come home. And I cannot imagine a parent telling their kid like, you have to be homeless. You know, you can't come home. Like to me, the family struggles way more than anyone else in this battle. I'm not saying what I went through wasn't hard, but I cannot imagine the helpless feeling that families feel. And so I cannot imagine my parents having to tell their baby girl, you have to stay out homeless with who knows what will happen to you. You can't come home. But that's what al told them to do. You know, you don't bail her out. And it was because of that that I came up and went to treatment in Seattle and ended up with a beautiful life. Like they literally saved my life by not enabling me. And for people that don't know, you know, Al-Anon, that is for parents to go to where, you know, I went to a Naranon meeting a few years back. But yeah, Al-Anon, Naranon, where you can go and it's a group of, you know, parents, siblings, anybody who are dealing with a loved one battling addiction. And so they can talk openly, share their story, talk, get advice, get support, all that. And it's, uh, I went to one right after my brother died and I could definitely see why it was great for people who are going through it, you know, having a, having a loved one going through addiction. But then like, you know, they asked me to talk at the very end and I felt bad cause I'm like, well, two weeks ago, my brother just died from addiction. That's like the worst nightmare. 
Right. Oh. Yeah. And it's like, okay, that's, that's not for me. That's not my group. <laughs> but you know, I wish, I wish I knew about these things much sooner because really it's that support group you need. And again, you know, like you mentioned the, the enabling, that was such a big part of parents in that group having that, like you said, it's the baby girl or baby son, whatever it is. And it's like, it's so hard for them to, to let go and say, I can't help anymore. And again, I don't know what the right approach is. Each approach is so different, but for you in this case, you know, it sounds like it saved your life. And this was after them bailing me, you know, them helping over and over again. They tried many times and I just, for some reason, never got it. I just didn't, it just didn't click. And I don't know, I still will never know why in that moment, I just said, I'm ready to give this a go. In that moment, you know, when you said ready to go, how did you find your recovery center, you know, kind of guide us through that, you know, because a lot of people, it's that window of they're ready, but then again, it's like, okay, what's the action plan? Where do I go? How do I get help? Especially in COVID. I mean, right now it's so hard. But I had heard about the Salvation Army, which was the treatment center I went to. My parents had told me about it. They must have been told about from someone. And then I had a friend in Portland that's friend went through it. So I'd heard about this program that was six months plus long, like you stay there for six months minimum, and it was free and you work for your recovery. So you you just you work whatever they want you to do and everything's provided for and Again, I had done a 30-day program that didn't work for me. I had done outpatient programs. I just knew that I needed something long-term. So I called my parents and said, if I can go to treatment, can I come home for a little bit before I go? Like, just, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm done. And they said, call and see what they say. So I called and they said, we have a month waiting list, but we can get you on. So I called my parents back and I was just like, please, I will stay on house arrest. I don't want to do this anymore. Can I please come home? And I promise like I'll stay in the house until I go to treatment. And they said, yes. So, but they said, they'll pick me up. My clean date's actually Halloween because they were having a Halloween party. So they said, well, they'll pick me up the morning after Halloween. (laughs) And they said, if you smell like booze, you can't get in the car. So that's why I actually stayed clean on Halloween because I knew if I started drinking on that 31st, I would smell like booze on the first and not get to go home and sleep in a bed and take a shower and do, you know, those things I wanted so bad. So Um, yeah. So then I went home and called them on Monday. They said, call every day. I don't know if they did this as like a test to see how bad people want it, but I called them on Monday and they said, Oh, we had a bed open. And I looked at my dad and he's like, let's go tomorrow. And then we drove up here on November 4th, six years ago. And it took probably about three, four months before I actually started to feel a little better. Like it took me that long for the obsessions and like the constant state of feeling icky minimized. So everyone's like timeline is different. Some people get what they call the pink cloud where you get clean and everything is so great that you're so happy and you're just having the best time and early recovery. That wasn't my story. I was full of a lot of icky and hard feelings. And it was about four months in maybe that I was like, wow, I could actually do this. Like, I think I like myself again, you know, like I'm starting to show up every day and and work hard and take care of myself and give myself that self-respect and dignity that I had lost. And then you start to, you do it enough, you know, days in a row, you start to like yourself again. And so it was like four months in that I was like, you know what? I think I got a life ahead of me. Like, I think there's some, a different, a different journey for me, but it took four months. So a 30 day program wouldn't have been right for me. I would have probably gotten out and relapsed again. Like so many people do, you know? 
I mean, that's that's hardly enough time to even get sober and collect your thoughts. Yeah, you're wow. I mean, it's two years before your brain heals from alcohol and most drugs. It's like one to two years before you're fully healed as a human. And sometimes people don't fully heal ever. Yeah. The frustrating part for me, you know, when you look at kind of the, the macro level of all this is, is it comes down to treatment beds. And again, like you just hit it and you called and said, Hey, I want to get on a wait list. And they said one month. And again, it's not, I'm not saying, you know, anything bad about Salvation Army or anything like that, but that's just, that's everywhere. And 30 days for someone trying to, you know, take that next step and, and change their life. It's like, that is something in America that needs to be fixed and needs to be fixed now that, you know, we have to invest in this. And it's so frustrating because again, 30 days, that's a long time. And detox, there's, there's a lack of detox programs and detox doesn't go down to the root of the obsessions. And like, there's so much deeper, you know, you get into addiction and your, your soul is broken. You know, my soul, my spirit was broken. So I could detox from alcohol or people can detox from drugs in what, four to six days or two weeks, whatever it takes for them to, you know, feel better. But like, you're still broken inside. So then, you, you know, where's the tools to to heal from that if you just throw you right back into your life and it's like no wonder people don't stay clean yeah and again it's like you talked about too the 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 shame and guilt of it all and and i hope i don't know what's going to happen these next you know four to eight years in terms of of recovery and and how that's going to be focused but you know that that insurance piece because again when you go to a 30-day rehab center you're paying 15 30 thousand dollars plus and that just doesn't do anything. It doesn't do a lot. And like you said, you know, four months in, you know, that's when you started, you know, building yourself up and feeling good. And that, and that repetition every single day, like, you know, you talked about, you know, you started drinking every day and it broke you down every day. And then again, there you are four months in sober and again, same repetition, but you're in a good setting. You've had the, you know, the therapy, all that kind of stuff to understand why you were doing that. Right. And there's a, there's a saying in, in the rooms, which, you know, I work a program now that's, you don't know yourself until five years clean. And I, there's some truth to that because if you spend, you know, I spent a solid, you know, probably four, three, four years in pretty deep active addiction, right? Like I always had the addict gene, but it's going to take me years before I recover. You're not just going to snap your fingers and go back to, you know what I mean? It takes time to heal from all of that. And really months is not even a question. I mean, you don't, that's where I actually work. Narcotics Anonymous is the program that I attend and I will never stop working the program and doing my steps and my recovery and my therapy because this disease, this addiction, it manifests in different ways all the time. So I can have six years clean and be manifesting about something that just totally came out of the blue, whether it's exercise or food addiction or codependency with men, all those things have been a part of my six years clean. So alcohol and drugs have been out of the equation, but I'm obsessing about something else now. And it feels very similar, even though I'm not spiraling and hurting my health necessarily, or doing something like exercise, which is a healthy outlet, I'm still obsessing and I'm not free then. I'm not happy in an obsessive state where I need that thing to make me happy and feel whole. And that's where the programs, like if I have any like recommendations for anyone that's trying to stay clean, it's to dive into those AA, NA, whatever program, that's the support that was missing. And it's not my family or my friend's fault 
that they weren't the, enough of a support for me. They just weren't going through it the same way as I was. They didn't understand. They never will. And now my community, I mean, most of my friends up here are in recovery because we understand each other in a way that nobody else will. And that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just the, it is just what it is. And that's why the rooms work. That's why people that stay connected in a program usually end up staying clean. And to kind of piggyback off what you just said, and it's okay for family members, you know, who are not, who have never experienced addiction or, you know, maybe never will. It's okay not to feel that way in terms of when someone's going through it, like you mentioned, you know, that they won't know how I feel and it's okay. I think you kind of hit it on the head when you said your parents went to Al-Anon and, you know, right there, it was, it sounds like that kind of gave you a spark as well because it was showing, you know, support and wanting them to understand the disease. And I think that's a lot too of, we want to understand why someone hurts and what, you know, why are they doing what they're doing, but we're not going to know that's up to the person and, you know, for family members, just show the support and whatever that is. Mental health. Addiction is mental health. This is the way I view it. So people with addiction have an obsessive and compulsive disorder, just like a bipolar disorder is the up and down with your moods and the gluten tolerant, they can't eat gluten or whatever it is. To me, the health component of what I have is an obsessive compulsive mental health disorder. And so I'm going to have this the rest of my life. So I'm constantly proactive in my treatment for my mental health to avoid me turning to something that will kill me eventually. That's the level of like, that's how I view my, my addiction and my recovery is that. And when I really look at it that way, I feel very like at peace with it. You know, it's very doable then. It's just a part of my life forever, but I know the the recipe to have it under control and understand when things go on in my head, why they're going on or what the avenue is to reach out and to get the support I need to like not pick up alcohol or drugs because of it. That's awesome. You know, so I, I kind of want to now dive into re- your recovery because it's been six, a little over six years, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. And Kind of, you know, t- tell us, you mentioned four months in is when you kind of started hitting your stride, you know, tell us, you know, what you've been doing since then and, and how you've been able to ma- maintain your recovery. I don't want to say stop those manifestations, but, you know, control them. Sure. Yeah. They're pretty at bay. I mean, I can catch them pretty early on. So there's rarely a time that I spin out. I call it like a spin out or I just kind of like have a, a moment, but it's there. They are still for sure. But yeah, so I was in treatment. I graduated the treatment program at six months. And I stayed there. So I decided at about th- four months in that I didn't want to move back to Portland, that I wanted to start over in a new city with new memories. And that was a really, really good choice for me personally. Uh, they say moving is not a solution, but to, truly for me, it was a very helpful tool to kind of just like get to reset. So I stayed and I, I stayed in the program until about eight and a half, nine months. And in the program I was at, it has a really awesome transitional period to daily life. And so I started interviewing back at, you know, athletic clubs and fitness facilities to be a personal trainer again. And I ended up getting a job at the Seattle Athletic Club, which has been a lifeline and a saving grace because my boss hired me when I was still in treatment. So he gave me a chance to redeem myself, you know, to get my career back and we'll be internally grateful to him and to them for all their support. 
But yeah, so I got a job and worked a few paychecks until I had enough money to move into an Oxford house. So I chose the route of sober living. Highly, highly recommend it because all it does is surround you around people that are like-minded going through the same things as you. And you also, for me, I couldn't get loaded because I'd get kicked out, you know, and end up homeless in Seattle. So to me, I moved in there and actually lived in the room with my still current best friend to this day. We lived in the same room together. It was awesome. So both of us are newly clean, you know, just trying to like figure out life. And then I have this new buddy that I get to do it with, you know, and, uh, Yeah, from there, I lived in Oxford for a little bit. And then I moved around a bit and, you know, just learned how to live life. My career really has been amazing. I was so blessed to have the the job at the club with all the support that I have. And I actually just started my own personal training virtual business a few months ago. So it's like so crazy to get the gift and opportunities that I have today. I would have never, ever, ever thought possible. But all of it is truly only possible because of, in my opinion, like my program that I work and you know, the program I work is Narcotics Anonymous. I think every program works. You just have to find the one that works for you. So I don't think any is better or worse. I chose to work Narcotics Anonymous because they really, they focused their recovery around all obsessions. So drugs, alcohol, people. For me, you know, exercise, food, relationships with men, all of that have been things that I've obsessed about in my recovery and it didn't feel good. So I've worked programs around those things as well. And that the program I work allows me to really like hone in on that. But yeah, I've done outside therapy. That was really, really helpful. I have a sponsor and I work the 12 steps, which are just pretty much free therapy. I have, you know, a home group meeting that I go to every week still, even through COVID. I've gone to other meetings. I just stay very active in my program because it's given me a life and I don't want to ever go back to the life I had before. That's so wonderful to hear. And it sounds like you work those steps every single day. Yeah, I, I really believe the steps are the freedom because it's it's really simple. It's admitting your problem and then it's looking at resentments and defects, right? Because resenting people usually stems from something within us, within me that I don't like, whether they made me feel some way or something. And then you do amends for anything, any wrong, you clean your side of the street, and then you keep giving back to other people that need help and support. I mean, it's so simple and it's so applicable to everyday life for anyone, which is why to me, it's just so a no brainer because addict or not, I'm super grateful. I have these tools in this program to get free therapy, to like live a happy, healthy life with freedom. Addict, again, addict or not, I feel like every single person can benefit from some form of, I guess, the steps or therapy, right? Therapy is for everyone. We all have struggles and battles and none are worse or better than others. It's just what we experience in life. And so for me, like, you know, I really, yes, there's things I wish that didn't happen, but I feel very, very grateful for my horrible 20s where I really struggled because I was forced to dig deep and figure out who I am and what makes me happy and complete and what I want for my life. And there's people that go their whole lives that don't ever really figure that out because they don't have to. And for me, it became a life or death where I had to figure it out or else I was going to die. I mean, that was how I see it. So I'm really, really grateful for it, and which is why... I'm very comfortable talking about it. I feel very proud of my recovery. I feel happy when people want to hear and learn about it because that's how people get saved, right? That's how people get an opportunity to 
have a different life than what they maybe saw their future being. So that's why I just am really happy to be here talking about it today. One thing I love talking to people who are in recovery is they touch on gratitude so much. And I feel like we, we miss that in our day-to-day life. So many people just, you know, we kind of just go about our life, just do our routine, wake up, do what we need to do, go to work, come home, dinner, whatever, fall asleep, do it again. And we don't take, you know, those, those 10, 15 minutes and just kind of, you know, jot down or, or reflect upon, you know, what you're grateful for that day. And I think it's something that the recovery community is going to give to us as a society. More and more people every single day come out and talk about their recovery. They're more open about it. And the one thing I've always noticed is is just the amount of gratitude. And I think a lot of people pick up on that as well. And it's, it's very, it's very inspiring because again, it reinforces me to, to constantly take a second pause and realize what I'm grateful for every day, because there is something you know, no matter how small or big, there is something to be grateful for every single day. Stay in gratitude and life seems a lot more enjoyable. I mean, there's so many studies and things that back that up, right? It's just, it's just doing it. It's, I actually just finished my step 10, which is the daily inventory on yourself. This is where it's cool because this applies to everyone. So every night I answer four questions about how my day was mostly about, did I have obsessions today or any icky feelings? But the last one is what am I grateful for today? So every day I have to just think about, I don't have to write it down, nothing. Just think about something I'm grateful for, for the day. And again, that's like a gift of recovery. Like I I wouldn't be doing these steps and answering these questions if I didn't have recovery. So it's a gift. It's very, very cool. Yeah, no, that's so awesome. And these last, you know, 50, 53 minutes, like it's just crazy to, you know, to hear your story and, and see where you've been and now where you are. It's, it's very inspiring. And I just, again, I, I'm just like anyone who's gone through it and is going through it. I'm just so sorry for the pain that, you know, people felt or are feeling and hope they can find the recovery that you have and, you know, millions of millions of others have as well. And I think that kind of gets lost too with, you know, talk about death counts and all that kind of stuff. But there are 20, 30 plus million, you know, Americans alone in recovery. So it is very achievable. It is very doable. And just like you mentioned, you know, you just got to put yourself out there and do the work. Right. Yep. I am so happy we connected and you share your story. It's wonderful to to talk to you and, and hear your voice. And it's crazy. It's just crazy. The, the more um, older we get, I just, you know, I can't believe, you know, kind of just delving into this, this realm of, you know, substance use, just how many people it has affected you know us around you know growing up again like you mentioned private catholic school and never think it's going to happen to anybody but it's uh we got to start educating young you know just letting people know instead of showing the the meth ads of your heroin if you take this once you're going to die i mean that just doesn't do anything don't do drugs it's not the right approach in my opinion <laughs> yeah it's I very mean, outdated do drugs, i'm not saying that, but <laughs> it's the education on what it is and what can happen from it instead of this blunt approach. So I agree. I definitely agree. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and sharing your story for having me. Thank you so much. This was really, truly awesome. So I appreciate you letting me come on here and share a little bit of my story. No problem. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Henry Zunkel podcast. Please like subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to learn more about a nonprofit, please go to henryzunkel.org. As we say here at Henry's uncle, You are loved, never judged.